The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. If you've ever taken a a road trip, let's say somewhere further than, I don't know, six hours away or something like that, then you know that who you travel with affects how you travel, right? So let's just say you are an introvert in a car full of extroverts. You would really maybe prefer that they just let you alone to stare out the window and maybe read your book. Or let's say maybe you are um, an extrovert in a car full of introverts and you're wondering, what on earth is wrong with these people, right? Um, if you have ever traveled with an infant, if you have ever traveled with a pet, an aging parent, or a potty training toddler, right? You know that who you travel with affects how you travel. Well, as we turn into chapter five of the Old Testament book of Numbers, we see God's people learn this lesson too. Just a quick recap from last week, all right, previously in the book of Numbers. Uh, We saw how God is faithful to his word last week. He's brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, and he's multiplied them greatly into a great nation, fulfilling the promise, uh, or at least beginning to fulfill that promise that he made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. He is faithful to his word. We also read of God arranging their camp in chapter 2 with him at the very center, All eyes towards him. And then drawing from chapters 3 and 4 how he is powerfully present with his people. And lastly, we said that God prepares his people for war, right? When you zoom out and think about the entire book of Numbers in in its fuller context, God is preparing them to march. They are headed to the promised land, Canaan. They're headed towards conquest, towards war. They're heading on a journey here, see? And let's note here that it's, it's not, it is not a particularly long journey, all right? It's uh, two or 300 miles tops, uh, and I know there's a lot of them. They got a lot to carry. They don't have buses or 18-wheelers or anything like that, so it could take a while, maybe a few months, maybe even a year. It might, might, might be generous, perhaps. But at this point, no one is expecting 40 years, but they're preparing to be sent out. And what we're going to see in our chapters this morning is that who they travel with affects how they travel. In fact, these chapters, in these chapters, we're going to see three main things. There's lots more, okay, but three main things from these chapters. Number one, God commands purity. We're going to see that in chapter 5, verse 1, all the way over to verse 21 of chapter 6. The second thing that we're going to see is God speaks blessing. This is a short section. It's a very important section. It's right at the end of chapter 6. In fact, it might be the most famous passage in the book of Numbers. And then number three, the third thing that we're going to see is that this God who travels with them, he requires sacrifice. This is chapters 7 and 8. And so God commands purity. God speaks blessing. And God requires sacrifice. All these things affect how they travel. First, God commands purity. He commands purity of those whom he is traveling with. And we can break this section down even further, seeing that God commands purity in the camp, purity in relationships, purity in marriage, and purity in service. Look at chapter 5, verse 1 again. This is one of the passages that Sarah just read. Chapter 5, verse 1, again, let's get it in front of us. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge, everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them aside outside the camp. 
that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so. They put them outside the camp, as the Lord said to Moses. So the people of Israel did. And so we're told of some things here that count as unclean amongst God's people. Skin diseases, bodily discharges, contact with the dead. These things are not sins. They can happen to anyone, male or female. And anyone with such an impurity or uncleanness is to be put out of the camp until the disease or the discharge has gone away. is isn't an issue anymore, right? But more importantly, we're told why. Verse 3, because God dwells in the camp. But this isn't simply an, an issue of good hygienic practices. This is an issue of purity and the holiness of God. God's desire for his people to be pure stems from his own purity. In the next paragraph, we see God command purity in relationships. Look at verse 5. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of these sins that people commit in breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed and shall make full restitution for his wrong adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. Notice carefully here that these are sins that are interpersonal. We know that because restitution is involved, which means another party has been wronged. But more importantly, verse 6 says that a sin against another is in fact a sin against God, breaking faith with the Lord. David knew about this in Psalm 51, didn't he? He prayed against you, and you alone have I sinned, O Lord. And so God commands purity in relationships because the impurity of sin in a horizontal human relationship is, in fact, an impurity in the vertical relationship with God himself. And this threatens the holiness of the community. Now, like with the impurities of, of a disease or discharge, there's processes you can go through. There's a process of reconciliation available here. Someone who has sinned against his brother or sister and realizes it is to go to them and confess, the passage says, and to make it right through restitution. But there's more to it than saying, I'm sorry, and making it right. In in verse 8, we learn of a certain situation where there isn't anyone to make it right with, and how the confession and restitution are combined with an offering of atonement. Hmm. Why would that be? Well, because sin against a brother or sister is also sin, or we should say first and foremost, sin against God, who commands his people to love their neighbor as themselves. It must also therefore be atoned for. Unreconciled sin, unatoned for sin amongst God's people will not be tolerated. And so God commands purity in relationships. One such relationship that gets even more attention next is the marriage relationship. In verses 11 through 31, we see God command purity in marriage. Now, have you read this passage? (laughs) If not, you should, and then you're going to have some questions, all right? Uh, The ESV titles this section, A Test for Adultery. It's It's a trial by ordeal, all right, summarized, if a man suspects his wife as being unfaithful, he's to bring her to the priest, along with an offering. The priest prepares some holy water, 
this combination of, of water and then dirt from the tabernacle floor, and she's to drink it. Hmm. And if she's been unfaithful, listen, all hell's going to break loose in her body. If she hasn't been unfaithful, she's going to be just fine. Now, on the surface, all right, this sounds archaic, this sounds demeaning, disrespectful, this sounds denigrating towards women, it sounds disgusting. Um, but you should know this sort of trial by ordeal was not uncommon in the ancient world. You can research this on your own, but as you do, you'll find all kinds of examples about one that I read about. This wasn't God's people, this was a, a, another trial by ordeal that was common at the time, where if a woman was suspected of adultery, she was brought before a judge. Essentially, she was assumed guilty until proven innocent. And so she was to put her hand in a pot of boiling water. And as she removed her hand and it wasn't burned, she was deemed to be innocent. If she took it out and it was burned, she was deemed to be guilty. Guess how well that worked out, right? I mean, guess how fair that was to a falsely accused woman? Not at all, was it? Well, if you examine this passage in Numbers 5 carefully, I think you actually see something quite different. First, we're told right away that the accusing husband might be wrong. He's not assumed to be correct here. That actually would have been a little shocking in the male-dominated world of the time. Look at, look at verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act, and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife though she has not defiled herself. But the point here is that we don't know. You've got a jealous husband who suspects his wife was unfaithful, but there's no proof. There were no witnesses. If there was, we would be dealing with a clear case of adultery, the punishment of which, according to Leviticus 20, is clear. Death. But here, it's an accusation with no hard evidence. And the woman is not presumed guilty until proven innocent. Do you see this? This law, or at least part of it, is intended to prevent a jealous jerk of a husband making a false accusation against his wife. Second, the accused woman is brought before a priest, verse 14, not a judge. Interesting. In fact, the priest, verse 16, presents her before the Lord. God himself is overseeing the justice here. He's the one making the determination here. Are you seeing this? It's repeated in verse 18, and again in the summary of verse 30, she is set before the Lord. And after all the care that we read in chapters 3 and chapters 4 about keeping people away from God, and the power of his presence and the danger of getting too close, God welcomes the accused woman into his presence. He oversees her justice. Third, this whole process is completely, at least physically, <laughs> safe for the woman, for the innocent woman. 
Right? Like, unlike putting your hand into a boiling pot of water, she's drinking water with some dirt in it. And like my mom used to say when I dropped my snack on the floor, a little dirt won't hurt, right? Unless she's guilty. Fourth, verse 15 says that the husband is the one who brings the offering, and it's called a grain offering of jealousy. It's also called a grain offering of remembrance. And this is debated, but it's not immediately clear if this offering is for him or for her. Perhaps it becomes one or the other depending on the outcome. If he was wrong and is found to have falsely accused her, an offering for his jealousy. If he was right, an offering of remembrance, of remembrance bringing iniquity to remembrance. Either way, it would seem at least that the husband isn't just getting off the hook if he's found guilty for falsely accusing his wife. An offering is made for a sin of jealousy. Fifth, some see in verse 22 the woman saying amen and amen as her actually agreeing to this process. Her participation being voluntary. That might be the intention of this verse. I'm not 100% certain on that. But overall, what I want to stress is that unlike the demeaning, denigrating of women by others during this time, there's a level of dignity given to an accused woman here. Additionally, I'll add that there's no recorded instances of this trial by ordeal, this test for adultery ever being carried out, which may further clue us in on the fact that at least half of the reason for it to begin with is to protect faithful wives from unfounded accusations of jealous husbands. The other half of the reason for it, to stress the importance of purity in marriage, which is a particular instance of purity in relationships. Marriage being a very special relationship that God created that points to his relationship with his people. And so we got purity in the camp, we got purity in relationships, purity in marriage, and then lastly, chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, purity in service. We're not going to exposit this whole section, but here we're introduced to what's known as a Nazarite vow. This was a vow that anyone could make, male or female, anyone at all, to separate themselves to the Lord. And so up until now, just the Levites have been set apart for the Lord and service to him, and they, they were born into that position, if you remember. But now we're told anyone really could take this vow and separate him or herself for service to the Lord. It was a vow of not just abstaining from alcohol, but chapter 6, verse 4, everything that comes from the grapevine. Wine and fruit being a, a part of the normal everyday life for them in this world. It's a vow of abstaining, in a sense, from the things of this world. It's also a vow of wholeheartedness. A vow of devotion, purity and devotion. One of the interesting things about this vow is that if, you're, if your close relative died, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, someone close to you died, you weren't to go to them. It's a vow of placing God even above family. Hmm. Willing to forsake even family. It's a separation, this holy devotedness and purity of service to the Lord. And so we see in these passages, God commands purity in the camp, purity in relationships, purity in marriage, purity in service. But <laughs> what does all this Old Testament purity talk have to do with us? Right? Well, everything. Because in 1 Peter chapter 1, all the way over in the New Testament, on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus, listen to what Peter says to the Christians he's writing to. He says, as obedient children, 
Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, and he quotes from Leviticus, you shall be holy for I am holy. So from Leviticus, or we can say Mount Sinai and Numbers, it's all the same time right there, right? All the way down to today, God commands purity. He commands holiness, personal purity, relational purity, marital purity, purity in our service, wholeheartedness in our devotion to him. Now that's a heavy command. Purity? That is a heavy heavy command. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, it might sound overwhelming. It might even sound impossible. Even if you're a Christian, you're probably thinking, well, what about Jesus? You know, what about Jesus and his work for me? Well, that's a great question because in fact, when we trust in Christ, we are washed clean, aren't we? You were washed, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Or Titus 3 verse 5 talks about the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Or Hebrews 10, which tells us because of the work of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure water. You see, when you place your faith in Christ, or when you placed your faith in Christ, you were washed. You were cleansed. You were sprinkled clean. These aren't just nice words that the writers of the New Testament came up with. They've got their roots all the way back here in the Old Testament. You were washed. You were cleansed. You were sprinkled clean. You were counted as pure. Ephesians 5 says Jesus will one day present you to himself without spot or blemish. Holy and without blemish. And yet, being washed by Jesus is no free pass to ignore God's command, his call to holiness, to purity. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Dennis Olson, in his commentary on the book of Numbers, bluntly states this this way. He says, our modern inability to appreciate or even understand how purity systems work is a barometer of how far away we are as a culture and society from having a notion of the reality of a holy God as a truly defining center of our lives and our communities. Studying this this week, right, has caused me to reflect upon the incarnation of Christ in a whole different way. Of Jesus, right, the the Holy One of God coming and dwelling amongst, living amidst sinful people like you and me, right there with them. (laughs) It's made me reflect upon God's Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. It's made me reflect on that in a whole new way. Like, see, as Christians, God isn't just at the the center of our camp. He isn't just like the, the center of our worship in this like, you know, abstract sort of way that we talk about. No, he's at the center of our being. He is with you. He is in you. The Holy One is inside you. 
And as we journey through the wilderness called life, he who is with us, he who is in us, is to affect how we travel. We're commanded to purity. The second thing that affects how we travel is God's blessing. Tucked away at the end of chapter 6, right before number 7, which, by the way, is the longest chapter in the Bible, second only to Psalm 119, is this, it's this little powerful, this little powerful blessing. It's almost, the, the, it's probably the most well-known passage in the book of Numbers. It's actually one of the first things I ever taught my three daughters how to pray. We still say it often, especially with Vivian, the youngest one. We'll pray it over her. Pray, I get to listen to her pray it back over me. We pray it often. We end our services sometimes praying this over you. Some of you have concluded your wedding services by praying, the, looking you in the eye and praying this over you. Number six, beginning in verse 22, it says this, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel and you shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Or the way I learned it and taught it to my kids, bring you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, God says, and I will bless them. Now listen, without knowing Hebrew, we're really only scratching the surface of how powerful this little blessing is. So I want to read you this from one theologian, Ligon Duncan, who cues us in. He says, listen to this. In Hebrew, verse 24 has three words. Verse 25 has five words. Verse 26 has seven words. So what do you see? You see the blessings enlarging, expanding, compounding as they go on from the first blessing to the second blessing to the third blessing. Three, five, and seven words, respectfully. In Hebrew, in verse 24, there are 12 syllabuses. Uh, I'm sorry, syllabus, syllables. There it is. Got college on the mind here, the oldest. In Hebrew, in verse 24, there's 12 syllables. In verse 25, 14 syllables. In verse 26, 16 syllables. So even the syllables expand. And there are, in verse 24, in the Hebrew, 15 consonants. In verse 25, there's 20 consonants. In verse 26, there's 25 consonants. Furthermore, if you subtract the name of the Lord from the total words used in these three statements of blessing, and the Lord's name is used three times, then guess how many words you have? Twelve for the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Duncan concludes, this is a very artistically, aesthetically, symmetrically done poem that conveys, even in its form, a lot of punch as to its meaning. <laughs> now, I want, you to, I want you to think about the placement of this blessing. It can feel a little bit random here. But remember what the focus of the entirety of chapters 5 and 6 have been up until this point. Purity. Holiness. And yet we know God's people, we know ourselves. We cannot, will not ever be perfectly perfect, perfectly pure, perfectly holy in this life. God knows that too. And so he comes to Moses and he comes to Aaron and he says, I want to speak my blessing to my people. I want you to place my blessing upon my people. And here's how. Speak this blessing to them. Place my name upon them and I, the Lord, will bless them. This then is the Lord's promise. His bestowed benevolent love upon his beloved people. To bless them and to keep them. 
right? To prosper them and guard them and protect them. To make his face shine upon them and lift up his countenance upon them. Countenance is is another word for the expression of his face. God is saying, my face shines when I look upon you. You light up my life. I delight in you. I mean, isn't that what every single one of us longs for from our Father, our earthly Father, let alone our heavenly Father? We want so desperately to know that we matter, that we are worthy of his attention, that we're not just put up with, but delighted in. God says, tell my people, my face shines upon them. My countenance is lifted up upon them. And that I'll be gracious to them. Do you see that in verse 25? And give them shalom. <laughs> Holistic peace in every aspect of life. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. You see, the command to purity is followed by the blessing of grace and peace. God is gracious to his people. He's not a hard, slave-driving taskmaster like Pharaoh. Now, he is holy. That doesn't change. And he commands us to be holy. That doesn't change. And yet, even his command to be holy is coupled with his promise to be gracious, to be grace-giving, giving us what we don't deserve, the light of his face upon us. As Christians, this blessing comes to us by way of the cross and trusting all that Jesus did there. It's our faith in Jesus, after all, that gets his name placed on us, Christians, little Christs. In fact, it's through Christ taking on our curse on the cross that we receive this blessing. Listen to how Old Testament scholar Ian DeGood captures this. He says, the cross is the very antithesis of the priestly benediction. Did God the Father bless Jesus and keep him when he was on the cross? No. He handed him over to the power of those who hated him and wanted to kill him. Did God the Father make his face shine upon Jesus on the cross? No. He poured out his wrath and his crushing anger against sin upon him. Did God the Father turn his face toward Jesus on the cross and give him peace? No. He turned his face away from him so that Jesus cried out in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus lifted his eyes towards heaven, For the first time in all eternity, there was no answering light from the Father's face. Even the Son turned away its countenance from Jesus, as if the universe itself could no longer bear to look upon him. At that moment, for Jesus, there was no peace. He was bruised for our iniquity. He was broken for our sin. He was abandoned for our faithlessness. He was cursed for our blessing. You see, Jesus took on the curse so that we could receive the blessing. He took on the antithesis of this blessing, the anti-blessing, so that we, through him, could be blessed. How does that come to us? Well, three days after taking on the curse, Jesus rose from the grave. He eventually ascended back into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God. He has been given the name above every name that's bestowed upon him. The Father's face continuously shines upon him. And because of all he's done, when you trust in him, 
The Father looks upon you and sees Jesus. And his face lights up with delight. You get the name of Jesus written on your soul, placed on you. And he promises to bless you and to keep you. To make his face shine upon you. He is gracious to you. He lifts up his countenance upon you because of Jesus and brings you peace. Friends, this is the God who is with you in your wilderness travels. And who you travel with affects how you travel. You and I get to travel through this wilderness of a life with joy, with confidence, with assurance of the Father's love and delight in us. With God's peace even. A peace that surpasses understanding. Even in times of sorrow and trial. And while the blessing comes to us freely by grace, listen, it wasn't free. It comes at great cost, which is what chapter 7 and 8 are all about and how God requires sacrifice. Chapter 7 begins with this setup. On the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed and consecrated it with all its furnishings and anointed and consecrated the altar with all its utensils, the chiefs of Israel, the heads of their father's houses, who were the chiefs of the tribes, who were over those who were listed, approached and brought their offerings before the Lord, six wagons and 12 oxen, a wagon for every two of the chiefs and for each one an ox. They brought them before the tabernacle, right? So tabernacle's all set. All the tribes now have brought wagons and oxen to aid in the transporting of it when they were going to move out. But then verse 10 tells us of the dedication of the altar. The altar, of course, being the offering of being for the offering of sacrifices. And everything you read in the rest of chapter 7 is all about the dedication of the altar, and it's very important. Chapter 7, verse 10 says this, and the chiefs offered offerings for the dedication of the altar on the day it was anointed. And the chiefs offered their offering before the altar. And the Lord said to Moses, they shall offer their offerings, one chief each day for the dedication of the altar. And then day by day for 12 days. One day for each tribe. The leader of each tribe came and brought his offering. They brought the same offering. His offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for the grain offering, one golden dish of 10 shekels full of incense, one bowl from the herd, one ram, one male lamb a year old for the burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old, all right? And on the first day, it was Nashon, the son of Aminadab, of the tribe of Judah. And on the second day, it was Nathanael, the son of Zuar, the chief of Issachar. On the third day, keep tracking down chapter 7, it was Eliab, the son of Helon, the chief of the people of Zebulun. On the fourth day, it was Elizer, the son of Shadir, chief of the people of Reuben. On the fifth day, it was Shelumiel, the son of Zerushaddai, the chief of the people of Simeon. And on the sixth day, it was Eliasaph, the son of Duel, 
the chief of the people of Gad. On the seventh day, it was Elishama, the son of Amihud, chief of the people of Ephraim. On the eighth day, it was Gamaliel, the son of Padazer, the chief of the people of Manasseh. On the ninth day, it was Abidin, the son of Gideoni, the chief of the people of Benjamin. On the tenth day, it was Ahazer, the son of Emoshadai, the chief of the people of Dan. On the eleventh day, it was Pegiel, the son of Okran, the chief of the people of Asher. And on the twelfth day, it was Ahira, the son of Enan, the chief of the people of Naphtali. Now, I skipped a lot, right? When we come to a chapter like this in our Bible reading, it is very tempting for us to be bored, right? Someone probably nodded off just now when I was rehearsing the names. Wake up, right? Have you ever wondered, though, why this is here? Why repeat the same thing over and over again? Why not just say, hey, there was 12 of them. They all brought the same thing. They did it day after day, and, and here's what they brought. Well, because there's an important to the repetition. It's all intentional. Like this is God's way, in God's word, of telling us every tribe is essential in its involvement in what's going on in the tabernacle. Every tribe needs for themselves what's going on in the tabernacle, namely the sacrifices. The sacrifices, after all, are not for God they're to God for the people, for all the people. And this slow, repetitive explanation is telling us precisely that. Verses 84 through 88 sum it all up. And then we're told, very importantly, in verse 89, after all of this, when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. And it, the voice, the voice of God, spoke to him. Listen, God was there. This is a climax in the book of Numbers thus far. Everything has been leading up to this in a way. All the arranging of the camp, all the instructions for transport, all the sacrifices and the dedication and the anointing of the altar, it all leads up to this. God actually shows up and speaks to Moses. I mean, like as we're reading through this, we ought to be like getting to the place of like, it's working. It's working. God has commanded all these things over and over. They've just done as God commanded. We're told that over and over. And just as he promised back in Exodus, he's with them. He's going with them. We're all set. Well, just about. Chapter 8 opens with this paragraph about the seven lamps of the lampstand and, and setting them up just right. I think this has to do with God saying to Moses... You're welcome in here anytime. And I say that because the lamps light the way in the darkness inside the tabernacle to the Holy of Holies. Where at the end of chapter 7, Moses had just heard God speak to him. Don't be a stranger in here. That's what God's communicating to Moses. 
Anytime you want to talk, go ahead and draw near. We'll leave the light on for you. And then most of the rest of chapter 8 is about the cleansing of the Levites. And again, we're not quite ready to set out, but we're close. The camp is arranged. The altar has been dedicated. All the Levites know their part to play, but before they start playing them, they must be cleansed. Now, the Levites, listen, we were introduced to them last week. Didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about them because I knew we'd get there this week. But what happens in Numbers is that the Levites are taken in place of the firstborn of Israel. Have you seen that phrase when you're reading through Numbers up through chapter 8 so far? And they're exempted from military service in chapter 1. They're positioned as a buffer surrounding the tabernacle in chapter 2. Chapter 3 and 4 give their duties. And also in chapter 3, we're introduced to them as serving instead of the firstborn of Israel. That's repeated here in chapter 8. Before we look at that in chapter 8, I want to rewind back to Exodus. I mean, this is, there's a lot here this morning, right? We put the scuba gear on, just go a little bit deeper. Hip waders, let's go in. Let's go in. All right, we're going in deep. Exodus 11, verse 12. I'm sorry, Exodus 11 and 12. The 10th plague. Remember the 10th plague? Remember the plagues? Back in, back in Egypt. In the 10th plague, God's going to do what? He's going to wipe out the firstborn of everyone in the land. Remember that? Every firstborn in every house except what? Those who have the blood painted on the doorposts. Those he passed over. That thing's going to come up again next week. In, in Numbers, we get a different word from passed over. In Numbers, these firstborn of Israel who were passed over are described as having been consecrated. God is saying, I didn't just spare the firstborn of all Israel. I consecrated them for myself. They belong to me. And this was a principle that was to continue. Exodus 22, verse 29 says, You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. All right, now we're ready for the rest of Numbers 8. Look at Numbers 8, beginning in verse 14. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the people of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. And after that, the Levites shall go in to serve at the tent of meeting when you have cleansed them and offered them as a wave offering. For they are wholly given to me from among the people of Israel. Instead of all who opened the womb, the firstborn of all the people of Israel, I have taken them for myself. For all the firstborn of the people of Israel are mine, both man and of beast. On that day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated them for myself. And I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. And I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the people of Israel to do the service for the people of Israel at the tent of meeting and to make atonement for the people of Israel that there may be no plague among the people of Israel when the people of Israel come near the sanctuary. Listen, if I can sum that up, the Levites are the substitutionary servants. The substitutionary servants. They are separated off instead of, in place of, the firstborn of Israel. And if you want to know why the Levites, why do you pick them? Well, I suggest rereading Exodus 32 and 
who it was that came to Moses' side after the golden calf incident. It was the Levites. I'll leave that to you. But now go backwards in chapter 8 and look at verses 5 through 13 in your copy. I'm not going to read all this, but you can. This is all about the cleansing of the Levites, preparing them for their substitutionary service. Why do they have to do this? Why does all this matter? Well, because they're sinners. Just like everyone else. And they are commanded to live pure lives just like the rest of Israel, just like you and me. They can't perfectly live pure lives, so they must be cleansed from their sin. And so there's a sin offering, verse 8, and then a burnt offering of atonement, verse 12. But if you read carefully, here's how it all goes down. And all of Israel was to see this. Verse 10, when you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the people of Israel, that they may do the service of the Lord. And the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the bulls. And you shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. Now, can you get this picture in your head? God's people are all gathering in front of the tent of meeting, everyone gathering together. The Levites are set up front, and the people's hands are on the Levites, and the Levites' hands are on the bulls, the sacrifice. The point the Levites are offering sacrifices for themselves, yes, but also for the people. Remember how important it was that all 12 tribes were involved in dedicating the altar? This altar is here for them, for their sins. The Levites are the substitutionary servants offering substitutionary sacrifices for the sins of the people. Their sacrifice is counted for them. Again, in verse 19, they make atonement for the people of Israel. Friends, I know that's a lot. You're like, where's the barbecue at again? You know? Are we doing an altar over there and burning the meat? Like, what, do we, what is all this stuff? I know it's a lot. And even if you didn't track with all of that, what I hope you can see here is that all of this together is a picture pointing forward to Jesus. The Levites see, they point back to the Exodus and they point forward to Jesus. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices. This then in Numbers 8 is a picture to us. As those with whom, in whom the Lord now dwells. Remember where we started in chapter 5? As those commanded to purity and yet cleansed by Jesus. Those who by his grace have received his blessings and peace, we bear his name in this world. Together we come, not with sacrifices to be offered on his altar, but as living sacrifices because of Christ's once for all sacrifice, his substitutionary sacrifice for us. He died in place of us. He's both priest and the sacrifice. And when we lay hold of him by faith, the sacrifice God requires for our sins is satisfied by the sacrifice of Jesus. We've been passed over by the blood of Jesus. We've been consecrated by the blood of Jesus. We've been cleansed 
by the blood of Jesus. What's more, on this side of the cross, we don't need a mediator like Moses anymore. We have access ourselves. Jesus made the way. He is our mediator. He's the light that guides us right into the presence of God himself. And you and I have access to the Holy of Holies. You can draw near. He says, you're welcome here anytime. Don't be a stranger. Come on in. He'll speak to you. He's with you. All through your wilderness journey, he welcomes you. He's with you because of Jesus. And who you travel with affects how you travel. And listen, one last thing. The, last, the very last bit of chapter 8 about the retirement of the Levites. Do you see that in that last paragraph? Seems strange, doesn't it? There's not actually consensus that I can find amongst commentators of why this is here. Here's my speculation, which means throw it away if you think this is bad. Right? Remember when I said back in the beginning that this really shouldn't be that long of a journey? Just a couple hundred miles or so, maybe a year tops. I think this business about the retirement age of the Levites is a subtle pointer to the fact that this journey that they're about to embark on is going to be way longer than any of them expect. Back in chapter 4, the census of the Levites was tracking men ages 30 to 50. Remember that? The journey ends up being 40 years. Translation, all these men are going to retire. Some of them are going to be dead. The older ones are going to cycle off. You're going to need to cycle new ones on. This journey is going to take longer than it should. And church, when your journey in your wilderness takes longer than you feel like it should, be reminded, just like the Israelites are being taught here, be reminded of just who it is that travels with you. Keep drawing near. You have access. I mean, the one who you travel with affect how you travel. The Lord of hosts is his name. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.